is a little more special to me just because my Annie is graduating. And I'm proud of her, but I'm proud of all of our uh, high school seniors and just all of our kids in general. I'm really proud of our student ministry here. And uh, so I congratulate them. You know, time is important, isn't it? Time is important, and boy, does it fly by. Now, uh, the seniors who are here today might not realize that, but when they're as old as some of us are, they'll, uh, they'll understand more about what that means as well. I can remember when Annie was born, and she's going to die for me talking about stuff like this, but uh, I remember when she was born, probably the second night in the hospital, Karen and I were just... Uh, you know, in, in her room, and uh, we're holding Annie on a, the hospital bed, you know, there. Just, I think we'd probably been feeding her or whatever, but we're just talking and, you know, thinking about the future and, uh, you know, things that would come in the years, you know, like high school graduation and weddings and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, but it'll be years before she even starts kindergarten. And now she's 17 and graduating, and it's just amazing how quickly those years go by. And I know all the parents in here, if you have a graduating senior, you feel that way as well. Time flies. You can't stop it. You realize this, right? You can't even slow it down. The only thing that we can do with time is we can maximize it. We can make the best out of our time. We can make the best use of our time as we take advantage of every opportunity that God gives us in our lives. And that's what I want to talk about today from Esther chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Esther chapter 4. You can turn it on as well. I know some of you use smartphones and iPads maybe for your Bible. And by the way, seniors, where, where are you guys at? Where you got raise a hand because you don't have your cap and gown on you. You have your Bible open? Did you take it out of the pack? You don't even know it's a Bible yet. I just told you what's in that pack. You didn't <laughs> so open it up. It's a Bible. And uh, Esther chapter 4 is on page 753 in that Bible. So open it up to Esther chapter 4. And for everybody else... Open up your Bible, turn it on. Also, reach inside of your worship bulletin and take out your message notes. Today's scripture passage is going to be printed there for you. It's going to be on the screens behind me as well. And there's a place on the back of your notes where you can take some notes of your own, a place for you to write down some of the things that you are learning. So how many of you have been with us since the beginning of our series in Esther? Just a show of hands real quick. Well, just to remind everybody about where we are and maybe to catch others up, let me tell you that Esther is an amazing story about how God uses a young Jewish woman to save her entire race of people, the Jewish people, and not even just save her people, but really to save history. 2,500 years ago, The Persians ruled the world. The Persian Empire was enormous. It stretched from India to Africa. Uh, By the way, modern Persia is Iran. Just to give you some perspective, uh, looking at a map and just knowing some things about current events today. Xerxes, the mighty Xerxes, was the emperor at that time. And he, he was a powerful guy but he was also at times a very weak man. 
And one of his weaknesses was that he was a party animal. In fact, he was infamous for some of the parties that he threw. Esther opens up in chapter 1 with Xerxes giving a party that lasted how long? Anybody remember? Six months. A six-month party. And I know I can't help but to say it, but because uh, I've said it a few times already. I've been to some parties, but I've never been to one that lasted for six months. Well, at the end of this party for all of his nobles and leaders who would help him go and fight a war against the Greeks, Xerxes tacked on an extra week-long party. And this party was opened up for everybody in the capital of Persia, which was the city of Susa. And then it got really crazy. Toward the end of the week, Xerxes got really drunk. And he sent a command to his wife, the queen, Vashti. The Bible describes as a very beautiful woman. And he demands that she come down to his party. She's, she's having a party at the other side of the, uh, the palace for the ladies. Xerxes wants her to leave that party and come to his party wearing only her crown. He wanted her to be the entertainment, if you will. He wanted to show off to all of these men his beautiful trophy wife so he can brag. Well, Vashti refused, and that had consequences. Xerxes divorced her, banished her from his presence, and took away her queenship. Well, that made for some problems in the kingdom. And so they had to find a new wife for Xerxes. So they came up with a plan to send counselors all over the Persian Empire. Remember how big that is. It goes from India to Africa. And the historian Josephus tells us that they collected more than 400 young women. I call them women Today, we would call them practically children. Most of these women were between the ages of 13 and 17. They were young virgins, had never been married. They were taken from their homes. They didn't volunteer for this. This was not like American Idol or The Bachelorette. These girls were taken from their homes, brought to this strange place to them, the capital of Susa, they were made to be a part of the harem of Xerxes. And for a year, each one of these girls was prepared with Persian beauty treatments for one night of a sexual encounter with Xerxes. From these women, Xerxes would pick a wife to crown queen. The woman he chose was Esther. Esther was an orphan girl who was raised by her cousin, Mordecai, an older cousin. He loved her and cared for her, raised her like a daughter. And after she became queen, Esther and Mordecai uncovered a plot by an evil man named Haman. Say Haman. Haman. Haman, Haman was a government official that Xerxes promoted to a godlike status. In fact, the people of Persia, whenever they uh, were in the presence of Haman, they were to bow to him as though he was a god. 
Haman was an anti-Semite, which means that he hated Jews. And not only did he hate Jews, he wanted to destroy the whole Jewish race of people. He was somewhat of a swindler, and he was... um, Maniacal is a good word. And he convinced Xerxes that the Jewish people, although he didn't call them out as the Jewish people, he just called them a group of people, were making problems in the kingdom and that they were not good for Persia. And he asked for permission to kill all of the Jewish people on a specific date Xerxes went along with the plan and they put a date on the calendar and this plot, this plan to kill all the Jewish people, men, women, and children, became law. Law. It became law. This is where our story picks up today in Esther chapter 4. Are you still with me? ready to read into it? If you're ready to go, say amen. All right, here we go. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, and by all that had been done, he's talking about this law that's been decreed. The, the Persian post office posted this and all the local information houses and post offices. Couriers carried it to every province throughout the Persian Empire. So everybody knew about this. When Mordecai heard about it, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, which means he was grieving. Uh, Sackcloth and ashes is an outward sign of grieving or mourning. It's something that you might do at a funeral. And so it's it's an outward expression of grief and what's going on on the inside. And he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In other words, you couldn't be a downer if you were going into the king's presence. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, guys, listen to me. You got to listen fast today, okay? This past week, when I was studying back through this passage, I found like a dozen takeaways, things I really want you to know, but I don't have time to give you all of those. So what I want to do is make sure that you get what I think are the most important four takeaways from this passage things that I don't want you to walk away from this chapter and from this service and this moment in time without. And here's the first one. Seniors, I want you listening. I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to your parents. I'm talking to every person in this room and every person who might be listening to this message out on our podcast. The first takeaway is this. Stand up and speak out against evil. Stand up and speak out 
against evil. Mordecai had already told all of the officers at the king's gate that he was a Jew. But now in, in this show of grief, he's making it known to everybody that he's a Jew, that he's one of these uh, people who have been sentenced to death. And he's not just telling a few people kind of hiding away over here in this part of the capital city of Susa. He's saying it out loud for everybody to hear. He's saying, I am a Jew. And also he is saying, I am against this murderous law to destroy the Jewish people. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He, he could have come up with a, a plan himself. He could have done some scheming. He could have sent word to Esther saying, hey, we got to get out of here. Gather up some resources, get the eunuchs together, get the people that we can trust, and let's see if we can get out of Persia. Or, or he could have just said, hey, we've got some pool now. You're the queen after all. I know you're a Jew, but you're, you're the queen. Maybe we can get you know, some relief from this law. Maybe they'll let you live and me live. But he didn't do that. Maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic about the church. You're skeptical about the Bible, skeptical about God. I understand that. And I understand some of the arguments that skeptics will use against God and against the church and against the Bible. And one of the big ones is stories in the Old Testament in particular where God will send his people out to fight against an enemy and the orders are to kill everybody. The argument is a loving, caring God would never do that. So how can you hold God up as a loving, caring God? Let me give you the explanation. It's a little longer than what I can give you here today, but I'm going to give you the thrust of it. We could talk more about it later if you're interested. Here's the answer. It was the answer then, and I'm telling you this. I'm telling you as a pastor who loves people, I'm telling you this as a preacher of the gospel. Sometimes the head of evil is so ugly and so venomous, and so threatening to the weak and the innocent, you have to cut the head off of it. You have to kill it. Now see, that doesn't sit well with this generation. Or maybe the couple of generations that we have sitting here. And the reason for that is, is that for the most part, not completely, but... For the most part, we've been able to keep the evil enemies somewhat away from us. Like right now, ISIS is Iraq's problem. ISIS is Syria's problem. ISIS is somebody else's problem. They're not around here so far as we think trying to kill all of us today. If they were, we would look at it differently. But just because they're not right here wanting to kill us doesn't mean that it's not our problem. And we can't pretend like it doesn't exist because it does. 
Yesterday was the 71st anniversary of the D-Day invasion. Do they still have history class in school? I'm somewhat being sarcastic, but do they teach history in history class? Do they teach about D-Day? D-Day was the day when the U.S.-led allies... Stormed the beaches in Normandy, France. The U.S. had decided we would take the war to Hitler and try to put an end to him there rather than take a chance that he might get here. Well, for 10 years, roughly 10 years, the world practically said nothing when Hitler became the chancellor of the Nazi party in Germany. And when the Nazi party came to power, no one said anything outside of Germany about the fact that Hitler took six years to turn Germany into a police state took away all of the rights of people and made gypsies and other groups of people, including Jews, display stars in their windows or other symbols that segregated them out as people. Once he had made Germany a police state, the world said practically nothing when... Hitler decided that he wanted to grow Germany, and so he annexed Austria. See, at the time, Great Britain, France, and Russia didn't have a stomach for war. It didn't seem like a threat to them. That was something the Austrian people would have to deal with. The world practically said nothing when Hitler decided that he would go into Czechoslovakia and start to split it up and take strategic parts of it away. Great Britain, France, and Russia did threaten war if Hitler attacked Poland. When he did, they declared war and World War II began. But for years, Hitler had been Arresting Jewish people, gypsies, other people that he would call the bastards of their nation. Put them in concentration camps and systematically murdered them. And the evil grew so big because people who knew better didn't do anything from 1941 to 1945, that devil killed six million people. Six million people. The saddest thing you will ever do, but something you must do in your lifetime, is to go to a Holocaust museum 
I've been to the one in our nation's capital. I've been to the Yad Vashem several times in Jerusalem. You need to see what evil unleashed looks like. Churchill for two years while the English are being just bombed. Almost out of existence. Pleaded with the United States to get involved in the war. Roosevelt, our president, did everything he could to get Congress to give him war powers to declare war against Germany. Listen to me. Our Congress didn't have a stomach for war because they didn't think that the people would support it. And so instead of doing what was right and being leaders, they played it politically correct. And we may have never gotten into the war until it was on our own shores and the continental United States had the empire of Japan not bombed Pearl Harbor. And the reason was, that's not our war. That's not our fight. That's not our problem. I think that's wrong, but I'm not a politician. And so I'm not just talking about what America ought to do. I'm telling you what Christians ought to do. And I'm telling you this, that you can't, harsh words, strong words, true words, you cannot truly be a follower of Jesus Christ and turn your head and say it's not your problem and not your concern when other people are being wiped off the planet. And the same goes for poverty, racism, inequality, bullying. Whether it's a bully tyrant or a 10th grade bully. As a follower of Jesus, you don't have a right to pretend like it's not happening and that it's not your problem. That World War II generation was called the greatest generation because they had a stomach to cut off the snake's head. I'm praying that this generation will one day be called the greatest generation because they have stood up and spoke out against what is wrong, against evil. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs, you remember what a eunuch is? A eunuch was a man that the king had castrated and he would serve the king, but he posed no threat to the king's throne, either by the eunuch directly or by children that he might have in the future. Now that was impossible. So they would serve the king and often they would take care of the king's harem. 
When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress because she's heard that Mordecai is in mourning. He's in uh, sackcloth and, and ashes. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he would not accept them. See, he wanted to have a face-to-face meeting, or she wanted to have a face-to-face meeting. And she knew he couldn't come in in the sackcloth and ashes, so the clothes were, put these on, come talk to me. But he would not accept them. Verse 5, then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Because she didn't know. She didn't know. Usually a king would keep his queen away from policies like this. He would say, honey, don't you worry your pretty little head about these government things. You just stay pretty. You go get your... That's what he's thinking. She didn't know. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square, not in the secret room out off of a private hallway somewhere, right out in the open. He went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. He ain't hiding. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. About 34 metric tons of silver. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Make sense? Make sense? Make sense? I mean, wouldn't you do this? I mean, it just goes to reason that Esther, the king's wife, might be able to reason with this guy, talk him out of it. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, which I would imagine Hathak is getting a little bit tired of this, you know, back and forth. All the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law. Here it is. That they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. So she's saying, Mordecai, you've got to remember how dangerous this is. I mean, think through what you're asking me to do. I mean, the king has a pretty good privacy policy around him. Anybody that knocks on his front door and wants to talk to him, if he hadn't sent for them, they die. And there's somebody there to do it. There will be somebody there waiting to see if Xerxes would hand off this gold scepter, and if he didn't, you were done. And then she added this. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's worried that the king has already lost favor with her. Here's the second takeaway. Remember that God uses ordinary people to do important things. 
God uses ordinary people to do important things. Think about this guy, Hathak. By most people's standards, he was an insignificant person in history. He he didn't matter. He wasn't a noble. He was not an official. He was not an important businessman. This guy was not on the A-list for the important parties that are happening in Persia. He was an ordinary person. In fact, he was less than ordinary because he was a eunuch. He wasn't even considered to be a whole man. He was a slave property to the king. But God uses him here, doesn't he? He uses him to be a lifeline of communication between Mordecai and Esther. Listen, this is a critical role that this man is playing. He's important to the story. No, he's not Esther. No, he's not Xerxes. But he is critically important to everything that transpires in this story. All right, let me, let me ask you a question. You guys, you have any thinking caps? Put them on. Ready? Be alert. Be alert. Important question. Do you, do you remember the story of Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke? Little boy had a bag lunch. Uh, two fish and five loaves of bread. His mama apparently had prepared it for him that morning before he went out to hear Jesus or before he left to go out for the day. Anyway, he had a bagged lunch. Jesus needed to feed a crowd of people. This little boy made his lunch available to the Lord who blessed it, multiplied it, and used it to feed 5,000 plus people. What was the mama's name? Bonus question, what was the little boy's name? Jason? Anybody? Okay, let me ask you another question. What were the names of the men in Acts 9 who rescued Paul by lowering him over the Damascus wall in a basket to keep him from being arrested and stoned to death for preaching the gospel. What were their names? Bible doesn't say. We have no idea what any of their names are. But would you not argue that they're all important? Sure they are. They're very important to the story. Maybe at times they're just a part of the details, but they're important parts of the details. Here we are thousands of years later. We're still telling these stories and the parts these played in history and in the Bible. And listen to me. God can use you in the very same way. Listen, graduates, Maybe you'll never go to an Ivy League university. Or maybe you will. Maybe you'll be a a titan of industry. Or maybe you won't. 
Maybe you'll be an important doctor someday. Or maybe you won't. But either way, either way, no matter what label you wear, no, no matter what you do to earn a living, God can use your life to make a difference in the world if you'll let him. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to, Mount, to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, and I'm sure Hathak's tired of this by now. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. Modern translation, don't be a diva. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That should be a warning to all of us. If you are not willing to do God's will and purpose for your life, to be a part of His great plan to save the world, He'll move on to the next person. But you and your father's family will perish. And this is the key verse of the whole story. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position, that you have become queen for such a time as this. That's powerful, man. That's powerful. Here's takeaway number three. God is in control. Say it with me. God is in control. Now say it like you mean it. God is in control. One of the key characteristics about the book of Esther is that God's name is never mentioned once. It may be in the VeggieTales version, Annie, I can't remember. But in the story, God's name is never mentioned. Yet his fingerprints are all over the story. God fills these pages. He's everywhere in these ten short chapters. In Esther, we learn about the circumstances that were around the survival of God's people in Persia. But these circumstances were not by accident. God had been at work behind the scenes all along. And Mordecai has stopped. And he's reflected on life. And he realizes as he's looking back over his life and Esther's life that they could have never orchestrated these events. They could have never themselves as human beings put together a plan that would have Esther seated one day in the second highest position in Persia. At the same time, a law has been Cast to kill her people. Mordecai is saying it's not an accident. 
And one of the powerful themes of the book of Esther is that even though you don't see God, he is still at work. And that's important to some people in this room right now because some of you listening right now, whether it's in this room or listening to this message out on our website, you're questioning God. You want to know where God is because you're not in an up time in life. You're in a bad time in life. You're going through one of the tough seasons of life and you feel like God is not there. He's abandoned you. You may even wonder if he's real. But I'll bet you that if you will stop and reflect on your life, you will realize that the divine hand of God has been at work in your life in the good times and the bad times. Just like you are not an accident, the circumstances of your life are not just due to good luck and bad luck. Our world doesn't work on fortune, good luck, bad luck, karma. This world is under the control and authority of God, just like every area of your life. He's at work. He's there. And if you'll pay attention, you'll see that. You'll understand it. That God has put you where you are right now for such a time as this. He is preparing you for today. Just a few more verses. The last three verses. Esther 4, verses 15 through 17. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. She doesn't say it, but she implies it. We're going to call on the name of God. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Maddie, that's a hero right there. That's a hero. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Here's the last takeaway for today. Some things are worth dying for. Most are not. Some things are worth dying for. Most are not. Esther didn't want to die. She didn't go in this hoping to be martyred. But she was willing to. Why? Why? Because saving her people and thus fulfilling God's destiny and purpose for her life was worth the price of her life. 
What's worth your life? What are you going to spend your life on? Are you going to give your life to something that's worth dying for? Esther went into this knowing that if the king doesn't give her the golden scepter, her head would be cut off. What are you going to do with your life that's worth you putting your neck on the line, which is where we get that phrase? What's worth the risk of having your head cut off? What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to live for? Surely God has called you to be something greater than to be the super Mario Kart champ of the neighborhood. Surely He has. Surely. Men between the ages of 18 and 35 sitting in this room, surely God has called you to give your life for more than just being an ace player among your buddies with the call to duty. Surely, surely, surely. How many of you have ever heard of William Tyndale? William Tyndale was an English priest in the Catholic Church. He was a part of a group of men in Europe that began what we call the Reformation of the Church. These priests were calling for reforms in the church, reforms in the the beliefs, the practices, and the doctrines of the Catholic Church, the universal church. And by the way, all of us, even those of us who are evangelical Protestants, we all trace our Christian heritage through the universal church, the Catholic Church. These men specifically were protesting things like Confessing your sins to an earthly priest. Penitence. Paying indulgences. None of which are in the Bible. Purgatory. Nowhere in the Bible. They wanted the Bible to be translated into every man's language because for a thousand years the only way one could read the bible is to know the hebrew or greek and for hundreds of years there were only two men in all of europe that understood hebrew the original language of the old testament or they could read the new testament if they could read greek 
How many of you read Greek? Neither could they. So it had to be read in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. How many of you know Latin? Do you really know it? I, I bet you do. I, there may be one person in this church that knows Latin. The rest of us, what we know about Latin is what we see on a college um, uh, crest. It has some Latin names on there. Latin was the language of the clergy. They understood it. They used it. All the masses, all the, the Sunday services, they were all in Latin. And so basically, you just had a few people, maybe the king and his nobles and maybe some other government officials, people who had like the Ivy League education, they could understand mass. But for the masses, they could not. And the church didn't want the masses to be able to read the Bible or own a copy of the Bible. Because they were afraid if the common man read the Bible, he or she would realize that many of the beliefs, practices, and doctrines of the church were not actually in the Bible and that the whole system would fall down around them. So men like Martin Luther and William Tyndale had to go into hiding. Martin Luther translated the German Bible from the original languages into the German language so the common German people could read it. It had been made law, punishable by death, because you would be deemed a heretic if you tried to translate the Bible into the English language, which was a hard-to-handle language, and it was rudimentary. Only the ignorant people could only speak English. But William Tyndale went to the council and asked for permission to translate the Bible from the original languages into English. Hang with me. I know everybody doesn't love history, but hang with me. They said no. And he had to flee for his life. He lived in exile for six years. Never came back to England. While he was in exile, he translated all of the New Testament and much of the Old Testament. King Henry VIII put out a bounty on William Tyndale. And they began to pay off people and they got closer and closer to Tyndale until one of the men who was a close friend to Tyndale took a payoff and betrayed Tyndale. He was arrested, taken to a castle, held there and questioned for 18 hard months. While he was being questioned, the church was killing people for owning copies, even leaflets that had Tyndale's name. It 
It was a group of people then labeled the Lollards. It was a derogatory term. It meant tongue waggers. It's what the church would use for people who wanted to speak the Bible in their native tongue. They flushed seven families out of their homes one night and took these men and hanged them and burned them in front of their children because these men had dared to teach their children the Lord's Prayer in English. They were killing people. And finally, they killed William Tyndale. But because he had been a priest, instead of hanging him, they choked him to death, revived him, and then burned him. What was this crime? He translated the Bible from the original languages into the language of a plowboy. And so now, the plowboy could know as much as the pope, the priest, the preacher, the scholar. Tyndale is called the father of the English Reformation and the father of the English Bible. Seniors, you got your Bible? Did you look at something on the back? See that name there at the top of it? On the back spine? It says Tyndale. About 70% of the English translation that's in this Bible are the original interpretations and translations from William Tyndale. Every time you look at this Bible, every time you see that name, you shouldn't just look and say with nostalgia, oh, that's the Bible that my church gave me when I graduated from high school. You should look at this and remember that this this book, the Bible in English, has been handed down to us on a river of blood. The blood of martyrs who gave their life to something they believe to be so important that every person ought to have access to God. They gave their life for it. What will you give your life for? I hope something worthy of your life. Would you stand with me in prayer? Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer with me. I want you to receive this into your life right now. Just say, dear God, I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. I want my life to count. I don't want to live only for myself. 
I want to live for the purpose and the destiny that you've created me for. And then if you're here today and you've never opened up your life to Jesus Christ, regardless of your religious background, I want you to say this prayer with me. Just say, Jesus, please make yourself real to me right now. I don't understand everything about the Bible, but if you are real, I open up my life to you. I want to know you. I want to learn to trust you and love you. I open up my life right now to your plan and your purpose and your destiny for my life. Use the circumstances of my life, good and bad, for your glory. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that second prayer and you opened up your life to Jesus, I want to know about it. The way to let me know about it is to take your connection card and make sure we have your name and a way to contact you. And somewhere on the front or the back, write a B on it. That means you're believing in Jesus today. And like Jason said, on your way out after we sing, and we're going to pray over our seniors. So, so don't, don't get gone. We're going to pray over our seniors. On your way out, just drop that into the receiving basket. You can give your tithes and offerings there as well. They're greatly appreciated, especially this time of the year. But right now, we're going to sing God of the Ages. And guys, I might come up and interrupt you in part of the song so that we can have prayer together. So make, make the first half really count. All right? This song, and I might just let you go all the way, Brian, because this song is about the God of the ages. The God who's in control. Even when everything seems out of control. So let's sing. Then we'll come back and we'll close with a prayer for our seniors.
I want to just ask for our seniors, if you will, just come stand right down at the front. I know from where you are, it probably seems like a little more crowded than it is. And uh, maybe our um, you know, parents, if you want to come, you're welcome. Uh, our staff, our uh, lead team members, if you guys are here, I just want, I want you to come down and just be near these kids. And if you can't come be near them, then you just hold your hand out toward them and let that be like a point of contact. And I want to pray over these, over these seniors. I want to pray for them and their families. I want to pray for their destiny and the rest of their lives. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, once more today in this service, we lift up these graduating seniors. We thank you for their lives. We thank you for what they've meant to us in the past, what they mean to us today. We, we pray for their futures. We pray, Lord, that as they go to the next step in their lives, that their greatest focus would be on knowing you and living out your plan for their lives, whatever that may be, wherever it may take them, whatever it may cost. I pray that you would let them live with the, cur- the courage of their convictions, even when it's not popular. Even if a professor thinks they're ignorant, because of their simple faith. I pray, Lord, that you would use each of their lives to bring glory and honor to your great name. Lord, I leave them and all of us with the doxology from Jude. Who says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you guys. You think it's been a good day at Rocky River Church? I do too. Listen, you're, you're dismissed, and uh, just on your way out, just, just FYI, make sure you speak to someone. Make sure you say hello to people. And uh, I'm not going to be down here at the front. I'm not going to be out in the lobby. I'm not going to be on the patio today. I'm just going to be daddy for the rest of the day. And I'm going to go this way. But I love you. And we'll see you next week. God bless you.